Hello everyone and welcome to What Would the Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me, as usual, is my good friend Ben. How's it going, Ben? Hello, I'm Ben. I'm the other host. It's going really well, mate. <laughs> I'm looking at a Zoom call, as you're about to allude to, I'm sure, which has got three, four different types of time zone going on, if we include the north of England and the south of England, which I think we probably should. Yes, definitely. Two different ways, longitude and latitude. There's, there's four different people here. So... I've recently been to the Kraken Gaming Convention in Germany, just add mm. another international element to it if I can. And I tried some more of Deathmatch Island, which is a game currently in playtest and development. I also played uh, some Odyssey Aquatica, and I'm delighted to say that from the other side of the world to join us is Tim Denay. How's it going, Tim? Hi, Kiora. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm dying to hear what you made of Odyssey Aquatica, but that's very uh, future. Oh, yes. We'll come Coming up that. shortly. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also from the other, other side of the world, also involved with the Paragon system, among many other things like Big Bad Con and work at Evil Hat, is Mr. Sean Lindner. How's it going, Sean? Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, I'm in the I'm in the early time zone here. I'm I'm just cracking past midnight, but you know that's that's fine. We've got we've got the after hours version or the early hours. I don't know what it is, but no, I'm doing very well and um, excited to talk to all of you. Excellent stuff. So, I guess whichever time people are listening to this, someone will be listening to someone as they're recording it in the same sort of time zone. So, you can you can listen to it whenever you want, listeners. Absolutely. You, you can anyway, but, you know. The thing that joins you both together, which we talk about first, is the Paragon system, which is a gong, I guess, was the first version that people will know about and hear about. And certainly, if they listen to our show, it'll be wax lyrical. So, um, Sean, I guess we'll start with you. He's like, how how did that sort of come about, how the development in its current stance come. We've, we've already spoke to John, but it'd be interesting to get your take on it. And yeah, I noticed I mean, that... I was, was going to say, I probably should have I should should have prepped for this by listening to the John interview. Uh, well, we're trying to catch you out, you see. That's it. We'll get yeah. your version see who's we talking to you. We put you in two different rooms and we're like, good cop, good cop, good I'm in cop. two different podcasts and then you can compare them and grill us afterwards. <laughs> Go back to John and say, well, I think we found an inconsistency. So, uh, yeah, so Agon is the game that I I played when I met the woman who is now my wife, Karen Twelve. We were at a wonderful um, game store in Oakland, California, Endgame, which is sadly no longer with us. And uh, a fantastic GM, Carl Rigney, was running these indie one-shots on a regular basis. And we both signed up for it, and we both played these amazing Greek heroes. And... Many, 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 many years later, John and I eventually ended up working on second edition together. But it's 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 important to me that part of my uh, attachment to Agon was that uh, it was one of the earlier indie games I was playing along with like Laris and Dogs in the Vineyard, and it was you know one of the few game one of the games I was playing was really doing something very different than the storytelling system I'd been playing before, a lot of White Wolf stuff right before it. And I uh, was very excited about it. And so it was just, it's, it's a cute, it's a cute, fun story about how I came to Agon First Edition. Second Edition came about because we, as I'm sure folks know, Evil Hat published Blades in the Dark with John Harper. We, after the Kickstarter was over, we talked to him and said, hey, you know, we could handle the, the printing and the manufacturing and the shipping and the fulfillment and all that jazz. And uh, we did that and it worked beautifully and it has continued to, and it's been really great uh, for both of us. And so after Blades had been out for a bit, we sort of started looking at John's back catalog and then, you know, said, is there anything that we would like to take, take another look at? We didn't want to just reprint something he already had out, but we thought, you know, so we're looking at the catalog and Agon came up. We both had a kind of similar experience with Agon, which was that there were moments where it really sung and it really drove home what it what we wanted to. And there were also moments where we felt like it got a little too entrenched in the, the tactical elements. The tactical elements were really were, were delightful, but they were kind of delightful like the once or twice, but then you're like, okay, we're now in round six. It's getting kind of getting kind of long and so we also wanted to add a few more nuances to it and so we decided let's try and make a second let's make a second edition and we actually originally brought jason morningstar on because jason is a amazing agon gm and he had probably run it more than either of us had 
and he was you know excited to work on the project and we gave him a brief that is what we thought we wanted we thought we wanted some more tactical options we thought we wanted a uh islands to work in a certain way and we played it and we're like yep that's what we asked for but it's not actually exactly what we wanted uh we want something that's a little more trimmed down we want something that's resolves faster we want something that puts more that makes the gm's job easier we want something that puts more of the fate in the player's hands we also wanted to remove some of the player and GM antagonism, the players can still duke it out amongst each other. We love that. But we didn't, the first edition had sort of a GM budget and a player, you know, versus the players. And we we realized that was really not, it wasn't a goal anymore. And so we took a lot of what Jason did, actually. He had, he had like, a lot of the island structure that exists in Angola now is, is, much of that is Jason's work. But the system, the mechanics, the resolution we actually made 12 versions of uh, agon second edition is really agon 13th edition <laughs> we revised it and revised it and revised it in, in substantive ways we would throw out whole systems and bring them back and change them around and we kept thinking oh we got it we got it and then john would play a game with a group and he's like man they broke it it didn't work and then We'd get it. We think it was perfect. And we, we thought we had it just pinned down. And one time I ran a game at a local convention, go play Northwest. And it just, it was just one, it was one of the worst games, honestly. And we're like, what happened? And thankfully all the players were real gearheads. They were really like, yeah, no, we, we know what happened. We know where it broke. And John was there. And so he came and he sat down and we talked like three hours about it. And the next version was maybe not the final, but it was real, real close. And it really helped us pin it down. Uh, so lots and lots of iteration, um, lots and lots of playtesting. And uh, yeah, and then, and then we hit control P and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and printed it out. I'm sure there was more steps, but I've been talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> Got to share that play spotlight, Rans. Okay, so um, Tim, what what first attracted you to this system? Because you've designed uh, a few different things based on it now. So, what was it about Paragon that kind of like got you excited? Well, I mean, to be completely honest, uh, I was a big Blade in the Dark fan. So when I saw the Aegon Second Edition Kickstarter, I mean, John's name was enough to get me to back it. I'm not like I'm a ancient Greek fan, but I'm not like a super buff, so that wasn't the touchstone that kind of hooked me in. So I'd got back to Kickstarter, I had a PDF, I hadn't actually played it. Um, I helped out with the Roll20 stuff a little bit with uh, Evil Hit. So I was pretty familiar with the full suit. But it was actually one of those things where one of um, the players I play with regularly, they are much more of an ancient Greek buff and they had come across this game independently and they bought it and got excited about it. When two people are both excited about a game, you know, you just want to give it a go. And so we did and um, it really clicked with the table and um, we really loved it and we played it for about a year. Played all the islands and did the whole thing, and had a great time. Yeah, so, so did I. Uh, and listeners can go to our Patreon to listen to the actual play of many of our games. Just had a little plug in there. <laughs> uh, so, I guess one of the things I find interesting from what you said there, Sean, is uh, the the technical elements that went into design it and the the crunch and the mechanics and the uh, of it. Because quite a lot of folk I know who've looked at a game like a gun, which is lean, tight, streamlined, not that many words, seem to think of it more as like an indie game, air quotes or a mm-hmm. uh, more story game or more about the narrative, which it kind of is. But it's it's curious to see that you've like the focus you had there was around the actual system. So the, the mechanics do matter. Like the, the nuts and bolts oh. of it are what make the, the rest of it work, right? They they, they matter uh, a, a, a lot. Um, I, I don't want to tell anyone who doesn't want to pay attention to rules that they have to. But we found... just I'll just give you an example of uh, how... Uh, the system really affects the play. So one version, several versions probably, but several of the versions had rules for spending divine favor before or after the roll. And so you could spend, the divine favor wasn't attached to a particular god. It was just like generic. You had like so much divine favor. And you could spend it before the roll for some extra dice. And the more you spent, the bigger the dice were. And you could spend it after the roll to explode a die that rolled max number. 
And so what would happen is, and also the, the GM had divine favor too. The GM could do the same thing. And so we'd get the situation where you, we all know the, you know, did you, did you suffer because you didn't meet the role? Did you win or were you best? Like those things all still existed. Those were all part of the game, but I could, I could, as a strife player, I could roll a 12. And I said, there's, there's the obstacle, but I, but I rolled a six on my, on my D six and I could just let it sit there. And then you could be like, oh, I rolled a 14 and then I can go, oh, well, I'm going to spend a point of divine favor and I'm going to re-roll, explode my six. Now I'm up to a 16 and then someone else could go back and forth. And so this jockeying went back and forth and sometimes every once in a while it was fun most of the time it stunk most of the time it just made a player feel like it just it didn't matter whether it was the strife player or another player doing it whenever you thought you had won and then someone else was like aha but really i can do a thing it just was a it was just a major letdown for everybody at the table like even the person who kind of who, who who won at the end didn't usually feel very good about it because they felt like they kind of they pulled it from another player by being you know by 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 being tricky or and it just it wasn't satisfying and it also just slowed the whole process down because we we were kind of like are we done do we finish How, are, are we done are we really done or okay we're done really okay yeah we're done um, because there was also like re-rolling dice. And so you could be like, well, I'll spend some to re-roll. Oh, and then I rolled max. And so then I can, and it's just, there was just so many fiddly dice bits. It also, thankfully, we realized that before we got to the coding part, because coding that in a roll 20 would have been a nightmare. But <laughs> yeah. again, that, that was neither hide nor hair. That, that, that wasn't relevant at the time, but, but we really realized that we wanted just a single role. And then from that, we also realized we wanted that single role to do a lot. We did not want to roll to dock the ship. We didn't want to roll to spot the assassin. We wanted to roll to, uh, you know, win the gladiator championship. We wanted the role to, you know, to, to, uh, to catch hold of the Eagle and ride on its back. You know, we, we really wanted our contests to be big and epic and a single role to resolve it and let the heroes be as, as ground down by the gods and the monsters as they wanted to be, or as epic and large as they wanted to be. And so that whole thing really spun out of many, many iterations with, with the mechanics that we, they weren't, they weren't result, they were not producing the play experience that we wanted. Sometimes they were, but sometimes they weren't. And so we kept tweaking them until they were liably were, were, were producing what we were hoping to see. Cool. And, and Tim, your games, we mentioned a couple. Deathmatch Island is one that's currently going through its uh, development phase. Play tested a bit. Ben's been one of my games as well. H- how do you look at something as, as Sean's been talking there, of like very finely tuned, like it's been, you know, this engine's been put together over many months of playing and iterations like as a an independent developer what's it like to approach that and go do you know what i'm going to change it a bit i'm going to add some stuff i'm going to maybe take a few things away like how does that feel how do you how do you start that journey yeah i mean it's a slippery slope <laughs> i mean that the the sort of gateway drug is uh, the license has actually changed but it was the paragon license which is sort of a model it's quite unusual was this paragon license where it explicitly Unlike, say, Forged in the deck, it wasn't about um, the whole SRD. It was the idea was um, Paragon playsets would not be standalone, and uh, I think they were likened to sort of DLC for a video game. So that made them quite approachable to sort of hack or create because you didn't have to worry about including all the rules, and in fact, you couldn't. So that your hands were kind of tied there in a good way. So for me, at least, that really resonated and made the whole process much more approachable. Um, and so then uh, it's kind of the, the blank canvas problem. It's, Instead of having to consider the whole rule set, it's like, well, I can't touch the core engine too much, but I can sort of add stuff around the sides and change some things. And what am I going to, how am I going to tweak this to get the experience I want? Um, so that's where I started. And along the way, um, eventually it became a standalone game and the full SRD got released and all that. And Deathmatch Island is certainly its own beast now, but um, that was sort of how I got started. I mean, in, in terms of like, 
what made me think it was a good idea. I feel like with with, with hacking another system, there's usually some some part of the engine that kind of grabs you, and we think there's something new that I could kind of tweak or play with. And and for Agon, for me, for that campaign that I was talking about, it was the a sort of competitive aspect, which is not something you see a lot in a lot of um, tabletop role playing games these days, or perhaps it's usually not done very well, right? That's it's usually horror stories about people. But I really enjoyed the way um, that sort of very appropriate to the genre that the 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 competition between these mighty heroes was sort of codified in the rules in a very fun, collaborative way, and we were kind of jockeying for glory. Who has the most glory? Um, in our group, there was one player who just always was the best in every contest, just really uncanny with the dice, and this drove me crazy. <laughs> but I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that, and um, so that was the part of the engine that I was like, I want to play more with this with this competition because I haven't had this in many other games, and uh, I want to make a whole sort of hack of this of Agon that really focuses in on, uh, on that sort of collaborative yet competitive aspect of going on. Back when we um, we talked to John, one of the, the things that I think surprised many of our listeners was he said that very early stage in his design process was the character sheet. Mm. That he'd, um, he'd done many, many role-playing games that were essentially nothing more than a character sheet, but that if he couldn't get that right, he couldn't continue. Now, mm. Tim, your stuff especially, if we look at Old Dog Games website it's a visual feast how how early in your process does the does the visual aesthetic kick in are you are you down with john here where you, you oh, yeah. make it first and then work the work the words around it yeah and yeah, no, um uh, that's a great uh, question and yeah i'm 100 in john's camp for better or worse where um i mean with deathmatch island i actually started with the logo which perhaps even more of start with the logos <laughs> started with the logo first <laughs> and the brand because i wanted the library Damn, now I need to make a game. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then the character sheet came second. And yeah, I, I often, almost always start with the character sheet as well. Because that's what you need at the table, really, is the character sheet. I mean, that's what you give the players to get them excited about the game and to convey not just the mechanics, but uh, for me, a lot of it's sort of like the vibes. It's so important to convey, which sounds a bit trite maybe, but I think it's really important that uh, that does start with the character sheet and with the visual design. It's the number one piece of play material that anyone ever sees, right? Like it's the most used play material in any game. And you stare at it for hours. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so I'm 100% in that game. And to the extent that I also write the whole thing into the layout software, which is sort of not great practice. But you know. Well, people say that, but it, I've got to say, it does seem to have worked. <laughs> <laughs> it makes our editors cry. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yes, makes editing difficult. Not uncommon, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed it. I, I don't want to disparage Call of Cthulhu, for example, but I'm just <laughs> about to. <laughs> but you, you look at a Call of Cthulhu character sheet, and a lot of it is is meaningless because it's all skills you don't have or can't use. So you, mm. you're immediately kind of, as a new player anyway, I mean, you're kind of bamboozled by all this stuff on your sheet. You don't know which bits you're supposed to do and which aren't. So, yeah, I much prefer a leaner, more tactile thing. Even, even Blades and the Dark... I'd prefer to take a, a custom sheet to a, a like a convention game and take off all the abilities that you can't use because yeah. each player book comes like with a big list of all your abilities and until you've leveled up you can't use nine out of ten of those or whatever the number is. Mm-hmm. So taking things like that off the sheet for new players or for people new to the experience, I think, really helps. But yeah, I, I like the the functional aspect. Uh, that, that's what we talked to John about, wasn't it? It's, it's a usable living document as well as the character sheet, so it should have things on there that you can tweak and cross out and. Add dots to and stuff like that. It's like the old oh, totally. battle tech game, isn't it? We used to fill in heat sinks and stuff. <laughs> if you remember that, everybody loves it filling in dots. Oh, heat sinks! It should be an interface, I think, for sure. And the other thing that kills me is when a character sheet was just um, like a few boxes with weird abbreviations, and you can't understand it without referring to the rule book. It's very mm. hard to get excited mm. about that kind of character sheet. Maybe once you filled it in, you kind of understand it more. But yeah, it just really disappoints me when I get handed the character sheet and it's just four boxes and some abbreviations and some words I don't understand. You know, I kind of want to be taken on that journey and sort of introduce through the sheet So, Yeah, and I think we've probably got Vincent Baker to thank for the idea of play sheets, mm. which is, for me, revolutionary. Yeah. We, 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 yeah. we all look old enough, if you don't mind me saying it, fellas, we all look old enough to remember <laughs> last century, so shall we say, um, and, you know, where character sheets might have to be done on photocopiers or written into notebooks and so on. And the idea of a play sheet... It, it just it 
I think is kind of a subtle shift in gaming that was actually very powerful and has ripples all the way through the last 20 years of gaming, probably. And the idea of a character sheet not just being a piece of paper that uses a tool, but is also the world. It is also your tutor in the game. It's also your vibe. Yeah. I think that's fundamental. And and talking to you, Tim, and to John previously, and I think Evil Hat probably as well. It's the, you know the visuals, the aesthetics, the graphic design of a game is arguably up there now as as important as your dice mechanic or your font that you've chosen. It's certainly a critical component. I mean, it it part of the reason why Evil Hat games look the way they do is that Fred Hicks, our president, is a graphic designer, mm. and so there's nothing he hasn't done the graphic design on all of our games. We have lots of games that either the the creator, like John or Tim, did their own graphic design, or where we brought in other graphic designers. But there's no game that Evil Hat will ever present that doesn't have Fred's eye on it to go, okay, this passes, you know, muster. And um and our we we think that the, the visual language of of a, of a book and of a of a and of the play materials is incredibly important to facilitate to facilitate play. Um, so absolutely, I I don't know how you rank you know what's more important your dice mechanics or your graphic design, but they certainly are both important. You know, they're certainly something we we pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, I really liked. Um, I mentioned. Uh, honestly, Aquatic Rig then, Tim, so he's just super keen to hear about it. <laughs> Please do. So for, for those out in listener land who, who don't know, it's kind of like um, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou or Jacques Cousteau and that kind of thing. It's like 1960s ocean explorers who all have a rival who's usually better funded than they are and seems to get other lucky breaks and their paper gets more publications and stuff like that. So it was a bit of an, an odd sell, if you know what I'm saying, to the, to the oh, German, Swiss, you. and Belgians that I was at, at the convention I was with last week. When they were looking at me like, the Laugh Aquatic of what now? But um, unfortunately, they, uh, they all trusted me when, uh, when I brought out the sheets. And, and again, I think the, the graphic interface, looking at the character sheets, and especially you've got a, a, a sheet for the ship as well, and you get to pick what rooms you have. Like you might have a bar or a research lab or a, a moon door or whatever. Let's get to and, and all that stuff... Um, it just draws people in. I think everybody's really on board once they saw that. And it's like, pick which, which rooms you want on your ship and which two submersible vessels you might have or something. And they make no mechanical difference whatsoever. And I, I was at pains to explain this. But the amount of time they spent in the session deciding whether they were going to have trained dolphins or the big diving suit like, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Whether they really needed a research lab or they should have a, a sauna or something. <laughs> and I think that's that's yeah. So the, the session went really well. I was yeah. You know, I'll definitely run it out again uh, at some point. So yeah, it's it's closer probably to traditional Agon than yeah. Deathmatch Island, for example. So the rules are, are pretty much as is. So that that was easy to to get in. But I found with all these games, it's the um, the theme and mood, not just the graphic design, but the sort of the stories you create just off little words or a little thing that comes up. So. A story from our Gon games was that at one point I had a scribe that was sort of writing down what really happened because after the second island, the, the, the heroes all failed, did a terrible job, and they were trying to tell everybody what a great time they'd had. And the, the scribes in the background telling the real story. And he just became a recurring character out of nothing. So there's nothing the mechanics tells you to do that. There's no NPC list or anything like that. But he's just developed as a thing that would seem sensible, and he became one of like the main characters by the end of the island. I think, you know, for, for all the all these sort of games for Paragon that... that the fact that everything's lean system-wise and you've got a good theme, I think then leaves you space for you all to come up with more stories. And these things just come up naturally in play that perhaps if you wade down by Pathfinder 2, you're too busy looking through spell lists or something or you haven't got, quite got the mm-hmm. cognitive load to be able to be thinking about interesting things that might be happening and bounce off each other. Would you agree with that? Or I mean, any game you can make up whatever you want, though, but I think if, you're, if you've got a tight game and a good theme, that leaves you a lot more space for your creative brain as a player. Yeah, 100%. I think as well, I mean, there's a lot of narrative freedom within the framework, obviously, because, I mean, all the players contribute and they get the chance to generate their bit. So that kind of creates an atmosphere of, 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 um, of freedom. Like, everyone knows if I want to just introduce a weird little guy, I can do that. And it doesn't have to come off some list of NPCs. Um, I can just, yeah, make this step up. Um, yeah, I mean, the great thing about Deathmatch Island is it has both a in- it has both an in-game and in out-of-game and in-fiction reason to uh, have big explosions and cool and cool action scenes because as players we want to do those things. Those are cool things. As the show goes, it wants to do those things because 
those get good. You know, that's what the fans like. And so there's a lot of permission imbued in that to narrate really delightful outcomes and, and horrible failures. And we, because it has the reality show competition show vibe that I think is very, yeah, and like the sort of squid game element, battle royale element, there's so many familiar touchstones. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things people want to be able to do in games, and sometimes games that are overly structured sort of t- keep telling you to wait for that. It's like, well, when you're fifteenth level, you could do that cool thing, but you know, you're just first level right now. You you can't you can't fly off the edge, and do, you you need three feats for that, you know. And and Deathmatch Island's like, yeah, yeah no, j- drive the van into the building and blow it up, and just before it hits, it, to blow it on the barricade, go for it. That that's a perfectly sensible uh, approach to your very first contest. You know, it's 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 there's no, not no nothing holding back in that regard. That's what really drew me to Egon as a system to work from because um, I mean you might think a battle royale game you might want something really technical would be you might be the first sort of thought, but yeah, I think for the reasons you outlined, it'll be really restrictive and it would just take a million years to sort of tell a meaningful narrative because uh, those kind of games. And in and in, in a game like in a, in, in a in a piece of media like Battle Royale, I feel like the character relationships have to be significant. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just don't care. You know, if somebody dies and they they didn't they didn't you didn't have a bond to them one way or the other, it it's it's insignificant. And I remember the game that we played just before. Or we sort of made the announcement that we were publishing it, uh, that Tim was running. One of my favorite moments in that game was using the trust mechanic to take leadership that like barely anyone ever does in Agon. It's very rare that someone spends a bond to take leadership. You just you can usually just work it out of the table. You can usually be like, well, could we do this instead? And most of the time players are totally reasonable. But in this case, I was like, I want this challenge. I don't want to debate about it. I want to go into the redacted area. I'm spending the, tr- I don't care that you're the leader. I'm spending the trust. And it was such a, um, it felt like such a profound thing where most of it was just us talking back and forth. But I could do this thing where I'm like, no, I'm going to engage this mechanic. And now the direction of the narrative is going to shift in this way. And it felt very powerful, very meaningful. And if it had been absolutely atrocious to one of the other players, we would have worked it out at the table. You know, we could have found something else. But just the fact that they're like, oh, yeah, oh, okay, cool. That's that's what we're doing now. You're, you know, you engage that mechanic to have this narrative outcome. And it was just, just very satisfying. And there's a bit for the players as well where they go, oh, that's a, that's a switch I can press at some point. So later on. I'm going to take that control back because you've spent yeah. it, but I've still got mine, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I also, found I found animals quite quite big in both games I played last week for some reason. So in in uh, in Deathmatch Island, uh, the the players actually did recruit some allies for the first time. I've run about I don't know half a dozen players, so they, they never seem to care about anybody else on the island. But they found the three legged dog in uh, in one of the nodes, and uh, that became their favorite thing. I hope not. So when it, when it came to a big battle and you got to have threats, one of the threats was the dog might die, and that that, that suddenly galvanized everybody into uh, action. And they still failed to save him, poor thing. But oh, no. yeah, the, the other one was in, in aquatic, and they decided they had dolphins, and it was I think Daisy Seven was the first one, and then they kept dying, so the number kept going up. And at one point, uh, they got the name wrong, called called it Daisy Nine when it was Daisy Ten. Uh, the, then the you know the the role failed, so the dolphins were obviously then on strike. Like you can't even remember who we are. We're just all the same to you, aren't we? And, you know, just mm. a big uh, dolphin revolt, which which comes out of nothing. Uh, but like that, them sort of bits and pieces. It's just in Deathmatch Islands. It's just like you just notice like, like a little detail of this particular place that there's a dog. Mm. And in uh, Aquatic, it was just on the sheet. You can have dolphins if you want them as a little tick box. But those two little things, little details, but make. You know, big moments of the game. They're the things you remember rather than, you know, I rolled a 16 or whatever. It's the it's interesting yeah. things that happen from the narrative that, that inspires people. Yeah. I, I find that one of the, you know, one of my favorite, it's, it's really hard in a lot of role playing games to present challenges to the players that they can't overcome. You know, most of the time, most games are sort of metered in a certain way where it's like, 
again, you know, if they're fourth level characters, you send them against CR four opponents, and you know, a fourth a party of four fourth level characters just wipes out a CR four opponent, right? It's it's and if you if you break that rule, if you're like, well, I'm going to just send them against a the dragon, then they all die, and you're like, well, that wasn't really fun either. You know, I wanted it to be dire, I wanted it to be tough, but um, the battle mechanic it just delights me so much as the GM because I tend to not want to try and figure out how can I mechanically outdo this I, what, in, in the second phase of the battle mechanic you're just going to say these bad things happen right you know um, the, the dolphins go on strike and they leave you because they've decided you don't care about them anymore and and, and I just love watching the players go no that can't happen we can't lose the dolphins uh, and and the um, the way they will fight for those dolphins when they're like the, si- the ship can sink but you know <laughs> But but the dolphins must love us. Yeah, it's it's just it's really rewarding to see that when players grab onto something, a threat, and they go that that cannot pass. Like we will, we need to stop that threat. Uh, it's yeah, really, it feels really good when you, when you know you've chosen something really really clear. Mm. There's um there's sort of a rich tradition of being risk averse in in role playing games uh, from the 70s 80s onwards, but. Stuff yeah. like Blades in the Dark, which I guess is going to be at the top of the DNA tree for some of the stuff that you guys are doing now, is one of the games that taught everybody to enjoy consequences mm-hmm. and to do an interesting action rather than necessarily an effective one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes you into a whole new realm of play when you realise that you, 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 you want to play a game where it's actually fun to fail. It's, it's actually no problem to, have, to be put in jail in, in yeah. Blades of the Dark. Well, it's a problem, but it's an enjoyable problem. It's one mm-hmm. that you can then grapple with. You know, failing roles um, in Agon is not really a failure because it's just made everything more interesting because now we all have to decide what that means and what we're going to take forward from that. But yeah, you're not you're not going home to camp and recover your hit points. No slur on those sort of games at all, but this one, you, you've got to be engaged with every every part of it, including the negative consequences, which turns out are positive consequences because it's just more fun for everyone. I think so. There's another game that, uh, I mean, I'm biased here because we also publish it, but it, you know, it was something that really stood out to me. Is It's a very subtle difference, but in Thirsty Sword Lesbians, mm. um, the results are... Uh, a, an upbeat on a 10 plus, a mixed beat on a 7 to 9, and a downbeat on a 6 minus. And April's advice for what happens on a 6 minus and the way it's described as a downbeat really tries to make it clear that, like, this is not a miss. You were flirting with the, the, the death princess. You roll a six, maybe the death princess is really into you, but now you've got the intention of the entire death court, and now suddenly you have a bunch of enemies chasing you, right? Like it doesn't, you know, your your outcomes should never lead to like, well, either nothing happens because no results are terrible, or the thing that happened is just so unfun for everyone, right? Like when you botch a role, you want to see it like catastrophic catastrophically go wrong in ways that like create the next fun challenge not in the way that you just feel penalizing to you and so i think i don't know i feel i feel like a lot of pbta games have also tried to sort of embrace this idea of like let's make all the role results really good so that people are not you know trying just for the you know best result they're 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 really delighted no matter what what the dice tell them yeah it's interesting some other systems pick up things like that as well that like I played some Barbarians of the Lemuria, which has if you roll a double one, that's you can make it a calamitous failure by giving the the player a, a hero point, and then something even worse happens. Yeah. But as Bass says, like some people are just trained to like try and avoid it. They want to spend a point to like re-roll stuff. It's like no, 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 no. It's, surely it's much more interesting if something disastrous happens now, yeah. and you get a hero point. Like why wouldn't you want that? So yeah, there's a bit of like convincing people that failure is fun in a little way, or sure. that bad circumstances are fun. But or if, well. The, the other thing I try to mention is like it could be bad luck or some external circumstance. Because the the thing I don't like about players sometimes is when people try to explain how they're useless or ineffective or no good. Yeah. Because they're playing heroes, so it must be some other factor that's happened that's made. I, I love I love um, using Indiana Jones as a great as an example of this. So Indy is running the everything's collapsing behind him. He he swings over the pit that's full of snakes and he gets to the very edge and he's like yeah. I made it. And then all of a sudden, dudes with spears jump out and they shove him into the pit. That wasn't Indy's fault. He didn't, he failed the role, but he didn't make a mistake. He was right. a 
he was an action hero. He just has the worst luck you can have. And I feel like deprotagonizing a player by saying, oh, you swing and miss is like, it's such a just, you know, I'd so much rather you plunge your sword into them. And then, you know, he looks at you and you realize like he's nothing but bones and your sword just slid right through his skeleton and his infernal eyes light up as he shoves you into the flames, right? Like, that's cool. It did the same thing mechanically, but I don't know. That, and that's why, frankly, why we have players narrate their their successes or their failures. Because I think players can narrate themselves suffering in ways that they enjoy that they wouldn't enjoy if the GM narrated that same suffering. If I'm like, oh, you're, you know, he 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 knocks you down and kicks you out and says you're a fuel a fool. That's not as much fun as if you get to say it about yourself and and really uh, drag yourself through the coals. Yeah, I hit a tricky situation in a scum and villainy game where I had to really address that. It was quite recent, and uh, a player decided to shoot the pirate queen in the head, which we kind of all knew that was going to happen. (laughs) And I was unprepared for it because you don't prepare for this sort of thing. And um, didn't roll so well. Uh, And I said, well, how do I I turn that? Well, you've, you've got a gun literally against someone's temple and you've, you've virtually pulled the trigger. I probably should have ruled that you just shot her in the head and she's fallen over. But, you know, you, you can't turn back the clock. These things are done. Sure. So we just decided she had a brain in a jar somewhere else. So shooting her in the head was going to be fairly ineffectual. And yeah. um, and the player said to me, are you just making this stuff up as you go along? And I thought, I thought we all were. <laughs> <laughs> you need to lean into that. <laughs> this is what role-playing games are. Yeah. He was genuinely stunned that that, that that I would have the permission to do that. And yeah, so is everybody who makes any media. <laughs> it's all lies. So are writers. <laughs> so is, they're a screenplay. <laughs> all the scenarios you play, someone else made them up as well. They just wrote it down. Yeah. All, something different. Well, and I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part there because if you are, if you don't have a trust in your group, then a move like that can feel like a real betrayal, right? Yeah. If the player's like, yeah. okay, we finally did this and we we finally got the pirate queen and you're like, ha ha, what you didn't know is her brain's in a jar, then that feels like a gotcha that is yeah. just so yeah. like punitive. Like, come on, how are we supposed to know that? Um, but if it comes from a place of a table of trust, you're like, well, I said it didn't work. Okay, let's find a cool, fun, awesome reason why that's true. Yeah. Not I don't like you. I don't think your plan was good. That cool on screen. Instead, it's like how how does the plot thicken? You know, yes. and and yeah, yeah. This was a con game, and one of the questions I was going to ask him is those high trust elements that you really do need to have. And, and my one worked out absolutely fine. We were friends anyway. But when we, we play a lot of this kind of stuff, Gaz and I at con games, and sometimes it's for strangers, or there'll be some strangers in the group. And and how do you guys get past that? Have, have you encountered any issues where where people are just at odds with with the style of the game? Because I have a lot of people coming to me to play games, and it's like a demo for them. They 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 haven't encountered this style of game before. They they may be attracted just by the fact it sounds unusual. I mean, Deathmatch Island is such an easy elevator pitch, isn't it? Mm. But have you encountered any issues where people are are, are kind of surprised if you don't put up a, a DM screen and <laughs> and get your scenario book out? It's a tricky one. I always hope that I'll at least have one or two players at the table who mm. get it, and then you can kind of lead by example and sort of set a set a precedent. Mm. Uh, I certainly think some kind of upfront conversation helps, like about uh, the nature of the game and the, the roles and responsibilities. Uh, I like the list in Agon where it's like um, there's a table somewhere where it says the strike player has responsibility, or sorry, I forget how it's worded, but they get to decide X, Y, Z, but. Uh, the hero players get to decide ABC. And it's kind of listed as though these two roles are equally, have as, have as much authority as each other, which is totally different parts of the game. And I think going into that kind of thing, really not, I mean, you must have run into this, I'm not sure what's really on. Yeah, I, uh, so this, something that, one thing that I try to always do, which is system agnostic, but I think it really helps, is my safety talks at the beginning of games always, they always start like, uh, something along this. I say, hey, everybody, um, thanks so much for being here. For the for the duration of this game, for the next four hours, can we all agree that we really care about each other at the table and we all want each other to have fun? Uh, we all love and respect one another. 
And uh, I, you know, I get like some some different responses, but usually people are like, yeah, that's fine. That that makes sense. For the next four hours, we're gonna we're gonna treat each other well, absolutely. And I go, cool. So in that event, if something happens in this game where we don't like it, where someone is unhappy, then we're going to uh, fix that. We're going to remove that section. We're going to redo that section. We're going to we're going to make sure that it's working for everybody because we all care about each other. We all just agreed, right? Like I just got you to agree that we care about one another. Since we care about each other, uh, we are going to make sure that the game is something that's enjoyable for all of us. And and then you know whether it's X card or lines and veils or whatever tool you're using. And I'm I'm actually a lot less enamored with specific tools, specific safety tools, as I am with safety talks. Like I think the the talk at the beginning and the getting everyone on the board really obviates a lot of the need to have a specific tool. Because I can just say like, eh, can we not do that? Like I don't need to have a tool to just say I didn't like that. Like is there a way that we can change that so my character doesn't look like an idiot at the in this scene? Like I failed, but can I fail in a different way, please? You know, or uh, I don't want to bring that element into into the game. You know, Gaz, if you had said there's a three legged dog, I'd be like, Gaz, that dog is not going to be threatened. Like, like, <laughs> yes, it's in the game. Let's not make that a threat, right? Like that would that would have just been me right there in the moment, not necessarily something we had to say up front. Just, um, and so I find that that kind of like everybody has permission to say what they want to see in this game and what they don't want to see in this game. I feel like that takes a little bit of the, um, oh no, I'm afraid that like you're going to give me a gotcha. Because even if I did sort of give somebody a gotcha inadvertently, they can say like, nah, let's not do that. And I, I really feel like that helps loosen the, 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 the fear of loss or failure or the risk aversion. It's not perfect. But it, it it's one one tool in the tool belt that I think uh, that I think helps uh, to 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 get the to get the conversation started at least you know to get people feeling a little bit more. I like that, but you've got in deathmatch as well as a stock saying this is what I expect of you as a player. This is kind of like these are the six things you're supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, a lot of them are positive. It's not about what you can't do. It's saying like think of big cool action sequences, do that and that kind of thing. But <laughs> like in any game you're on, like you say, it's, it's just because part of your pitch for you when you come against it, like these are the things I expect from you as a player. So then people know what they've got permission to do or what they're expected to. You know, well, like, yeah. There, there's so many people being, um, I think we call them like mistreated by bad GMs in the past, yeah. and they're frightened of doing anything in case they do the wrong thing or okay. you know they sit say something that's not within the genre of the playing or they don't quite know what to do and. You can quite often find players just asking relentless questions because they're trying to like cover themselves before they do anything. Sure. Why? Why do you want to know if the king's got a purple or a green clock? I'm not sure what's happening here, but in their head, they've obviously got some reason why they're asking these yeah. things. You kind of got to get past it to like, well, but what do you want to do? Don't worry, you. Like, I'm here to help you. Well, if we don't yeah. make things happen, you know. Like, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I found that what works quite well with Aegon and Antithmet Island and Paragon games is um, very early on there will come a point where after explaining the context and rolling the dice. You just ask the players like what happens next and there's so much sort of narrative power in that that people pick it up pretty easily or else the only way to move forward with the story is for them to tell you that so mm. yeah that kind of thing puts some motivation and i really like the agon intro as well where it's kind of like here's a scene do you do this 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 or something else what do you do mm. and you, you're immediately saying to the players like you, you take me in a direction now I've, I've set up a scene for you right you tell me where it's going to go kind of thing yeah, we really wanted those arrival contests to be something you couldn't ignore, but something that, you know, we, when we write the islands, we're like, well, here's a couple ways you can do it. We're, we're not saying this is the only path that we just wanted to create some, some easy, like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's try that options. And, and also make it so the strife player didn't have to figure it all out. But um, I, I, I do really uh, enjoy just like, kind of throwing the hand grenade in the middle and be like, this looks real bad. What do you all want to do about it? Yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a PBTA, you know, this is a, this is a principle, but you know, um, but broadcast the threats, right? I, I don't think that's actually what it's called, but you know, announce future badness is what it's called. Just like, just the more you can let people know, even stuff that their characters could never know, like, 
I don't know if you guys are going to catch the sniper in the bushes. It's got his gun trained on you right now. Like that's going to be real bad for you. If you guys don't catch him, you know, the more you can sort of tell people the, the, the real threats in the world, the easier it is when they do fail to figure out what the consequences should be. And also the more that cool they can feel. Cause they'd be like, Oh, there's a sniper in the woods. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to notice the glint off of his scope, you know, and, and that's how I'm going to go hunt him down. It's good to show us some of the stuff that, Again, like people used to too many perception roles and things like that. And yeah. you, know, you get to see the queen in the temple of Nemos or whatever. And she says something as, as a GM, you're trying to give away that there's something dodgy and the place. Oh, it's like, kind of, kind of sense motive or something. It's like, oh no, she's lying through her teeth. You don't need to roll that. She's definitely lying to you. Yeah. I love that. I love, I love saying something and it'd be like, yeah, you know, he's lying to you. Or I wonder if you know he's lying to you. Like it just, it's so much fun to, to just give the players that knowledge because then they're like, oh yeah, I want. I'm gonna figure it out. All good stuff. Okay, so um, I probably want to talk a little bit actually, if you've got time, is to talk about um, like the sausage factory of getting games made. So, uh, like, how how does that work between the two? Because you're both working on Deathmatch Island from one angle or another, uh, and I guess I've been involved a bit in playtesting. So, my first question would be, am I doing playtesting right? I think I am in that I play the game and then give as direct feedback as I can, and then like not be precious and let you do what you want with it or ignore it. I mean, that's up to you guys, but is that the sort of thing you're looking for from playtesters? How's, how's that journey been for you? I mean, for me, I think this is the first game I've worked on that's had this many playtesters. So it's, it's been really interesting to get that sort of breadth of um, feedback and super useful. I mean, kind of the most useful part is that uh, if you only playtest with a small group of people you know, or, you know, which is the usual kind of thing, but it's quite hard to weigh the feedback because you only have one or two people. So having that sort of, um, I guess, quantitative data like across a bunch of people, you can start to weigh like, okay, this person had this problem, but is it just individual to them or are there like you know, 10 other people who have the same issue? So, that, so that's really helpful. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the feedback you've been giving has been great. Uh, you know, combination of like, you know, this, this rule wasn't clearly explained or this didn't quite hit the table or, um, you know, a range of things. and. I mean, as you said, like sort of in our camp, I mean, I work as a graphic designer in my day job and a product designer, so I'm used to getting user feedback and so I'm pretty ruthless about like weighing the feedback and you don't have to act on every piece of feedback you get. So, uh, you know, a big part of the job is like, um, what do I take away from this and what am I going to do about it, which is really in the sort of the designer's camp and it's the, it's the playtesters or the user feedback it's to identify the problem that the solution comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, guys. I, I, I can, I can say from having read your, uh, your, your many reports, uh, you, you, you give really good, you give really good stuff. Uh, uh, and yeah, knowing what you did and what didn't work is, is kind of the best thing. Or what did work is, as well is sort of the best thing. Like w- what was happening at the table, you know, what didn't, what worked or didn't work, is it, great. When, when sometimes get into like. And if you'd done this, then you did that, and, you know, and they start getting into the design space. And it that's usually when playtest sort of feedback kind of goes awry. And you're like, well, maybe, but I've got 40, 47 other things that have all been built into this. So I, I don't want to start building around that edge case, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of it is like, okay, how do we address that edge case and bring it into the fold to to uh, to incorporate the, any changes might with that with a whole holistic system that we have as is. But, you know, it's hard to say, I would be happy to talk about the, uh, the process of making the game, but Deathmatch Island is a terrible example for that because <laughs> uh, Deathmatch Island, like, like Zeus coming fully formed from Kronos's broken skull. It just like came to us like, here's the game. It's great. I mean, you know, Tim has had all kinds of little tweaks here and there, but I mean, it really came to us at this very high level of polish. And, you know, we, we had some design meetings early on and, you know, there, I, we were like, you know, we said, well, here's some things that we would like as a publisher and, um, and, you know, some thoughts. And we, so we went back and forth with that, but like the game was 90% there and it's still, been that way like there hasn't been any you know we've been tim you've been refining it but there haven't been any like massive changes where you know we sort of knew 
from the get-go, this game was just very solid. And and we knew the premise was very solid. And so, you you know, the, and the visuals were very solid. Like, there was so much that was just right with the game, right from the get-go, that it was, uh, it was sort of a no-brainer. Ask me about other games, and I'm happy to tell you about all the work that goes into them, but Tim, Tim did all the heavy lifting for this one, really. So how does how does development work from this point then? You said there's lots of tweaks and stuff. Is that really Tim? Are you the guy that has to do it all? Do you get support from Evil Hat? Do you want support? Or are you, are you precious about your baby? Or how's that work? <laughs> I, try not, I try not to be precious. I mean, I already sort of feel like more fooled me for trying to do it. I should sort of deliver something pretty far into the development cycle. Um, but, you know, sort of trying out myself. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of support, especially around stuff like, you know, obviously... Um, Going through uh, playtest feedback and then discussing where and what to do about it and next steps and then uh, as well as sort of more technical roles I suppose you might say like editing and sensitivity reading and then those are massive, massively helpful parts of the process that I would never you know you don't just have those resources as a solo developer so yeah, yeah. Aspect is huge. I'm I'm really happy to have James Mendes Hodes on the uh, sensitivity reading of it. Uh, one because he did it for Agon, so we already know he's sort of invested and he did a really good job with Agon. Two, he actually played in the playtest game that that Tim ran for us, and so I wasn't thinking it at the time, but now I'm like, oh yeah, that was that was great. So he's got. Anytime someone works on a game, it's really ideal if they've had a chance to play it. So they get some sense of it. You can get an editor to edit a game that's never played it, but they don't know how the pieces all fit together as well as someone who who has played it. So we're very fortunate that we have a team uh, so far that is, you know, very invested in it and has played it and is is excited about it. But um, but yeah, so with sensitivity reading right now, then next to editing, Tim is actually working with. Our marketing manager uh, Tom and our, our pre- and our president Fred to suss out the cover. Tim sent us yeah. some good cover, cover designs. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where I just want to share it. But you, you better get it back to me right Has now. Has it got the logo <laughs> on it? Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, I mean, but that's an ex- another example of uh, sort of the support from Abraham, where you know I'm pretty confident in my own ability to design a good-looking cover that conveys the vibe I want, but that kind of um, experience of the market and, uh, you know, even title placement or uh, you know, what's going to look around the show, that, that kind of um, expertise yeah. is uh, really helpful. Yeah, we, we uh, cover copy is one of those things where, in general, we really, really like to give our creators as much control over the over the game as they can, as we can. Uh, it's it's really theirs, and in fact, part of our licensing agreement is that um, while we maintain the license to print and sell the game, the creators own their their IP. So Tim owns Deathmatch Island, right? Like we um, we have a con part of our contract is like if he wants to make Deathmatch Island supplements, we ask that he reach out to us and say, hey, do you want to publish these as well, so that we can keep them under the same hood. But if we offer if we offer a deal that he doesn't like, he can say, nope, I'm going to publish on my own. So we really want our creators to have, you know, real uh, uh, ownership of the the game. That said, the cover is the number one thing that makes it that changes whether somebody picks it up off off a shelf. So it's one of those areas where we're like, cool, cool, cool anything you want, Tim, anything you want, and and this is for everybody. This is not, the good news is Tim had Tim sent us six different cover designs. They're all amazing. It was not like we were. Like you know, you know, we, we were. It was an embarrassment of riches. All the the designs that he sent, but uh, but it is the area where we are very uh, thoughtful about what is someone going to pick this up and get what it's all about in ten seconds or less. Like that is absolutely critical. If someone doesn't understand what the game is and isn't drawn in, they don't feel the hook immediately. They're just going to put set it back down again, and that that applies both in you know in store in game stores and on online when you're just looking at a cover. So it's 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 a big thought in our head. It's like how do we make sure someone knows what this game is right from get go? The name helps. You know, we're 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 not. No one's confused. I hope <laughs> no one except for Mendez. Mendez was confused. He thought it was Match Island. 
thought it was a, a dating show. A dating show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a show for necromancers, Deathmatch Island. Thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the thing I, I mean, that's actually the thing I sort of need to push or want to try and convey on top of that is that some people think it's purely like PUBG or a Battle Royale video game style game where it's just about um, killing other people. And I know that sort of turns some people off who have then watched, say, a stream of it and have become more interested because it's really much more about um, there's sort of a second layer to it, of exploring the island and the sort of awareness yeah. and getting behind the scenes and that, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. if anything, yeah. it's sort of trying to show that there's more to it than just Deathmatch Island. <laughs> yeah, I think like any any really good creative work, Tim, you're not just reproducing something else. This is a, this is the prisoner. This is battle royale. This is survivor. This is, and, and this, and this is also like weird X files, the creepy, strange things going on that maybe they're just for show or maybe they're real. And, you know, we don't know. I think you have so many delightful elements that are woven together that it, it is worth seeing like, oh, this is several touchstones and this has several different sort of modes of play. Cause there's definitely the like fight to survive, you know, winners play to win, but there's also the, like, what the hell is going on here? Part of this thing, which is really delightful. I mean, I, yeah. I think leaning into the TV show elements kind of like a big thing for me, like, even though it's not explicitly that you're on a TV show necessarily, if you present it like that and get people to run it as if there are people at home watching, in fact, one of the games where I brought that in a bit, like one of the threats was your family watching at home on TV. You can see like there's a guy with, you know, with all the tactical gear coming in behind them. And that was a threat for the battle kind of thing. You know, so at that point, you see it's made it a TV show. But up until then, nobody designed it. But certainly the way characters approach it and, mm. and what they say. And it gets little details like the game I played with Ben at one point, I think it was, and you, you went in somewhere to a redacted area and, and the, the consequence of that turned out to be you've been here before. Well, mm. what happened last time or why are you mm. back kind of thing? And that was... Yeah. I mean, you can speak for yourself, but I think the look on your face was like, oh, wow, it was like a kind of, it's just a one-liner in the game, but that little thing suddenly spawned off like a whole new uh, paradigm of what, what this all could be about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that particular moment turned it from a from a one-shot into something much more nuanced, much more layered. You know, it, it turned it from a game where you could just kind of show up and be beer and pretzels about it, which you can do. You can do that with any game. Yeah. It is something that really made me lean back in my chair and go, huh, okay, things have just got a little bit more, not more interesting, but just a way deeper than I thought this was going to be. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then you, then you lean forward in your chair and you just lean into that and you think, right, okay, let's go. This, this, is, this is happening now. I mean, for a start, you've got redacted area on a map. Who's not going to go and poke at that yeah, at some right. point? You know it's dangerous. It doesn't matter. Let's get in there and find out what happens. And as soon as you start snipping through the chain link fence and approaching the sphere... Oh my goodness me! Things have changed. This isn't just about running around in a <clears throat> in a jumpsuit with a number on it anymore, and you know, killing people in interesting ways. Um, mm. It soon got very, very, very real indeed, which was brilliant. And uh, and um, by soon, I mean within half an hour. You know, stuff was yeah. happening that you have that great premise. You're totally into the game. You totally got it. And it's not a bait and switch at all. Nobody likes that in games. But you are getting deeper and deeper and deeper into a game that you really potentially thought was going to be kind of shallow. No, no offence, but it's not that no, at totally, all. Yeah. It lures yeah. you in. I guess one of the other um, interesting aspects that you do with Deathmatch Round is uh, for something like a gun, you've got an island with some people on it or some characters or whatever, whereas Deathmatch has kind of got um, a mix and match approach. So you've got a, a different set of casts. So you can yeah. go to the same island and have different people uh, and give a different tenor to the whole thing that's happening there. So was that uh, something that came to you straight away or was that just a... A way of trying to get more longevity out of the game. How did that come about? That's probably actually something that came in relatively late. I mean, yeah, that took a, a lot of work in it. Um, the, the original concept was almost more, uh, a little bit, dare I say, OSI inspired. I don't really know. I don't to find what OSI means when I say it there. But, but I mean, it was going to be like a point for all, which was the map is you have these points and you can go to different points. And uh, uh, I just thought it would be fun to have this, this sense of. Uh, exploration and place, which is not really what Aegon is about, so I wanted to add that in to Deathmatch Island, where you could see these points on the map that were um, restricted or redacted, and you, you can go there and you can choose where you go, so, so that was a big part of it. But in the original drafts, you actually this was, was madness, but the um, production player would generate every other competitor on the island, 
and then have a big sheet where they're all listed out. And then as they got killed, they'll scratch them off and there'll be like 50 other competitors and very granular. Didn't work with the Agon system <laughs> at all, mm-hmm. which is, you know, very free-form and narrative and dramatic. Um, didn't work with that sort of granular, like um, down down to the person, down to the individual kind of tracking. Found that out the hard way. <laughs> I found I found when people start asking things like how many competitors are left, I roll a D hundred. Exactly, uh, forty seven apparently. <laughs> but I think that's true. The touchstones as well, like on Squid Game, there is a number that you don't know who is like four hundred competitors to start with. You don't know who they all are. They just kind of die off screen, and you know it's not. That's that's not what's important. All you care about is who the protagonists are. Are they still alive? How they're doing? And roughly how many people are still in the house the game. The yeah. Game. And it gives you another angle as well, doesn't it? If people, everyone's walking around with the three number things on the vest and then you go to a node and someone's got four numbers, you're like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I just, I remember I rolled a hundred on my competitor number and I was like, oh, I'm the highest. I'm, And then it was like, no, no there's more than a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once I threw out the individual tracking, um, then I sort of keeping with that kind of OSRI type thing. I stuck with uh, random generation of other teams, so they wouldn't be individuals, but you can still randomly generate other teams, uh, and that worked a little better. But then trouble with that is there's no well, the islands in Aragon are so such a key part of the system and of the appeal of it to me. I think they're really easily overlooked, but they're really cleverly designed and they bring so much to the experience. And I think. Part of that is the thought that has gone into them about each sort of situation or scenario and how that kind of explodes when the players come into contact with them. And I just couldn't achieve that through random team generation. Uh, and so I found what I was doing in my own games was randomly generating teams, but then tweaking them to make a much more interesting sort of cast of characters. And then I realized I should just do this for the people at home. Like, they shouldn't have to do this work. I should just give them, like, here's a group of other competitors with some interesting dynamics around that one. If you don't like that, here's another one around that one. So that's kind of how the sort of cast system comes up. Yeah, I really like the nodes. That's a good thing for um, pushing people forward. Like mm-hmm. in a couple of games I've played, someone's like gets to, I don't know, the, the landing point or the industrial port, whatever it might be, they make a mess of it. And they kind of want to hang around and do other things and, and try again or reconvince someone when they did it the first time. Because they're going to move on now. Different node. Exactly. And it's it's yeah. that way of driving play forward. I think that, that really helps. And it's quite an easy decision. It's, you know, one, two, three, which one? That's not an easy decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and all your, the, 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 the elements on your charts and your tables, Tim, are just so good at conveying either just utter weirdness, like, like again, the sort of what's going on here, uh, weirdness or just the most corporate of corporate like neutral beige everything right like it's this weird mix of like yeah there's radioactive slugs but like the met the corporate messaging is just like go player go you know it's so i love the the, the, the like juxtaposition of those things that was the, the treat for myself while i'm working for this because i've worked in um sort of corporate design for most of my career. So to be able to use those kind of corporate design skills, but recognize them for this group of games, was <laughs> incredibly enjoyable. I'm so glad they finally got to get a good, good use, Tim. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm, I'm conscious of time, gentlemen, and that for some of you, it's the middle of the night and some of it's early morning, so I don't want to keep you up too long. But just as a, as a wrap-up question, have either of you got things you're working on at the minute you're excited about, or perhaps other games from other people that you've got your eye on? We, I, I feel, I feel uh, compelled since we just we just launched it. So this is what's on my mind right now. To mention that Girl by Moonlight is gonna go to crowdfunding soon, and it's a game many years in the making, and it's some of the finest Forge in the Dark design I've seen. I think Andrew taking the crew and changing it to be the series playset is reimagines the way you can frame a Forge in the Dark game in a really, really brilliant way. And, you know, you get to be magical girls, which is amazing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of Girl by Moonlight on the brain. Cool. How about you, Tim? Have you got anything that works? Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited about um, Blades in 68, which I've talked a little bit about on Twitter, but it um, takes Dustfall and Blades in the Dark and shoots it for 100 years, sort of deeply inspired. So swinging 60s, 70s, counterculture in Dustfall. 
yeah, I'm excited about design wise, game design wise, graphic design wise. Yeah, I'm having a blast working on it. And um, that's sort of my, you know, the, the end part of any development cycle is a little tedious with like, um, you know, fixing typos and um, and that kind of thing. So my, my reward and my treat driving me forwards is that then I can return to the Kingdom of Blades and 67 through this, this part of the process. It's very, very good looking. The, the, the everything, everything you've done so far. I love, I love Tim's Twitter threads where they're just like little, little teasers, little bits and pieces. Yeah, it's really good yeah. to see like a designer diary that's largely images, and, yeah. then, and then everyone says, "Can you show us some words?" You don't need words, not yet. The words will be later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make something you're you're proud of. We can't wait, you know, two years to show people. Yeah, it's uh, time for the shut up and take my money, ma'am, isn't it? Where you can kind of <laughs> just, just give me the stuff already. Stop teasing us. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, yes, t- time as uh, as beaters. Thank you very much for coming on, uh, Sean Lipner, first of all, especially for staying up late to, to be here. Oh, yeah. It, this was absolutely my pleasure. This was super fun. Thanks thanks for having me on the show. Excellent. Uh, and, of course, Tim, thank you very much as well for being up early in the morning or whatever whatever time it is. I've lost track. Oh, it's perfectly civilised here. Oh, well. Thanks very much for having me in. <laughs> and thanks for all the places, Steve. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing more about you. I hope to see you again. Yeah, no problem at all. I love telling other people what I think about their stuff and why it's wrong. That's one of my favourite things. So. <laughs> that's, that's my pleasure. That's what they invented the internet. <laughs> And uh, I shall drop some links in the show notes. Uh, thanks, as always, go to our patrons, your supporters, and allow us to carry on doing this fun stuff and talking to amazing people like Tim and Sean. Until next time, dear listeners, bye-bye. Thank you, gents. Thank you.